Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. Happy July 4th. I'm so pleased to welcome our guest. Susan Wilde represents Pennsylvania's 7th Congressional District. That's the heart of the Lehigh Valley with Allentown and Bethlehem and Bangor. She's former chair and ranking member now of the House Ethics Committee, co-chairs the New Democrat Coalition Climate Change Task Force. And she's also helping turn the greater Lehigh Valley into a hotbed of innovation and technology, showing us what local government and state government can do working together with businesses and workforce leaders, creating solid paying long term jobs for the community while also addressing the pollution in the region. It is a great pleasure to welcome a true rock star to Sirius XM, Congresswoman Susan Wilde. Hello. Wow. What a nice uh, intro. Thank you so much. Um, thank and, uh, you. Thank you. I, I'm thrilled to be here. Well, thank you so much. I want to start off by congratulating you. I know you've been working very hard to bring high-speed Internet to every corner of your district. Uh, a few months ago in the spring, you had a roundtable with White House and Treasury officials and leaders from Weatherly, Pennsylvania, to talk about the need That's for right. reliable broadband. This week, you announced $1,161,000,000 in federal funding for <laughs> Pennsylvania broadband Internet projects. Congratulations. You thank are one you. of the legislators. You're one of the few legislators taking credit for this who actually deserves to take credit for this so thank you thanks so much you mean as opposed to people who vote against things and then take credit for them (laughs) kind of shocking congresswoman isn't it how much of that was going around this yeah 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 exactly exactly well i know that about 15 percent of pennsylvania still lacks high-speed internet this is going to be a real game changer do you think it's too lofty to compare this to rural electrification of the fdr era you know, I actually don't think it's too lofty. I've never actually been faced with that exact question, haven't thought about that comparison. But to tell you the truth, the way I think about it and, and talk about it is that Internet access is no longer a luxury. It is an absolute essential. It's an essential if you want to get a job because 
hey, we know that lots of employers only deal now in online job applications. We found out during the pandemic how valuable internet was so that you could participate in telemedicine, which has become hugely popular. Um, there, And of course, you know, when there are snow days, if there are ever snow days again, we haven't seen snow in Pennsylvania in a while, but it, you know, it's really a nice thing for kids to be able to log on to classrooms, although they'd probably rather be out playing in the snow. So that's not <laughs> a great example. But anyway, my point is, it is an essential of daily life. It is just like electrification. Um, and so great comparison. I'm going to use it. <laughs> Please do. Well, I mean, you you sponsored the Regional Innovation Hubs program um, in yeah. 2021, and that was passed as part of the Chips and Science Act. So, of course, in May, the Commerce Department launched their application process for certain cities to get 500 million in grants to become technology hubs. Uh, they're trying mm-hmm. to, of course, reach out beyond Austin and Boston and Seattle and San Francisco to the rest of the country. You have been making quite a compelling case that the Lehigh Valley is a perfect candidate for this kind of funding. Well, thank you. Um, I think it's a compelling case. And I promise I'm not going to just rely on the fact that I wrote that part of the CHIPS bill, but I am proud of that. <laughs> My district, Pennsylvania 7, the Lehigh Valley, you know, we've got everything that that bill is actually looking for. We've got a consortium of academia, both four-year colleges with graduate degree programs in engineering and technology, but we also have two community colleges. We've got technical schools, and we have the infrastructure, and I'm using that in uh, not in the hard infrastructure, meaning for manufacturing. We already mm-hmm. are the home of a lot of manufacturers. The roots of this district are uh, with Bethlehem Steel, sadly, no more, Mack Trucks, And we have evolved over the decades into an area where manufacturing is literally our largest single sector in terms of the economy and in terms of being an employer. And then the other thing that we have, which we, I promise you, will be pointing out in the application that comes from my (laughs) district, we've got this great geographic location. That's what I was going to ask you about. Two hours from the uh, Port of New York, uh, two hours from the Port of Philadelphia. And if you look westward, um, you are a single day truck drive from two thirds of United States consumers, which is just staggering. The bad thing about that is um, it also means that we end up with a lot of warehouses, distribution centers in my district, which are not uniformly popular, as you could imagine, although I will mm-hmm. give them credit for the fact that they've raised the wages here in my district over the last decade. But, um, so, you know, you have to take the good with the bad. We're, so our geographic location is just amazing. And we've just got I, just yesterday I was with a roundtable of and yesterday and the day before two different mm-hmm. roundtables with with the group of people who are putting together the application that will be submitted to the Commerce Department. So I'm feeling really good about it. And I think we are literally like the, we should be the beta case <laughs> yeah. for these tech hubs, if you ask me. Well, I saw that you were with the Lehigh Valley Economic Development Corp uh, with Ro Khanna. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's yes. it's Lehigh Valley meets Silicon Valley. You two together. I, I know that a lot of firms <laughs> have been opening up facilities uh, like the, the that uh, Swiss company, ABB Installation, just opened up a four million right. facility. How much has the Lehigh Valley evolved, say, in the past dozen years? It really seems to be exploding. Well, it is. It's kind of it's one of those things that I 
alternate between thinking that I want to shout it from the rooftops and keep it under the radar um, because number one, we are excluding. We have so many employers that have actually approached us, mostly um, the Lehigh Valley Economic Development Corporation um, and Don Cunningham, who has done a fabulous job of running that. But, you know, to come to our district, the downside of all of that growth is that um, we have to keep up with it. The, you know, yeah. the the internal dynamics of making sure that we have enough housing and that our housing stays relatively affordable and that our roads aren't so horribly congested that all of the joys of living in the Lehigh Valley, you know, <laughs> turn into just a nightmare commute. Those are the kinds of things, Those that's the struggle that we have on, on that issue. But I can't tell you, in terms of our economy overall, we have a lower unemployment rate than the rest of the country. We have a lower poverty rate than the rest of the country. Um, mm -hmm. When I say the rest of the country, I mean the country as, as a whole. That is reflective of just this. It's a dynamic area to be. We are the third largest um, region in Pennsylvania. Everybody thinks of Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. Not nearly as many people think of the Lehigh Valley. So not only are we the third largest region, we're also the fastest growing part of Pennsylvania. So and interestingly, it is your classic swing district from a political point of view. That's true. It is. Ooh, and there are very few of those left in the country, as you probably know, so 20 some left in the country where you can really have competitive races. This is a district where people cross the aisle all the time. They will vote for one party for president and another party for Congress all the time. Happens all the time. And it's true. On on down to the local races. So it's it's considered a bellwether district for politics. Well, that's why I think so many people in the Democratic Party could learn so much from seeing the ways you legislate, not just from how you negotiate with folks on the other side of the aisle, but also the issues that you have prioritized. I mean, consistently, you keep bringing Democratic priorities to red and blue voters because they're human mm -hmm. priorities. And I'm, I'm thinking in this case about you just spoke on the House floor this week about the need to pass the Child Care for Working Families Act, which is a bill you introduced yes. that would begin to tackle this crisis. I know that you were uh, a, a young mom who once had to bring your kids to court with you as a young lawyer because you <laughs> had right. that same problem. Oh, you, you've done I your research. I heard that story. Yes. I, I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I had my, um, my first child, uh, I was faced with a daycare that was set, shut down in those days for lack of staffing. That was long ago. Um, my son's now 30. But I literally ended up taking him to court with me, which, let me tell you, was one of the most stressful things I've ever been through. He was a very, very active toddler. But And that's just sort of an anecdote. So many people are facing the stress of finding high-quality, affordable, reliable childcare every single day. And it is particularly acute in Pennsylvania, my district is uh, I, one county in my district, Carbon County, is considered a child care desert. We have um, in my other two counties, we've got about 1,500 children who are on waiting lists for child care. And that's just the ones that we know of. You know, so this is a huge issue. And let me just say, it, it, it really should transcend all different kinds of political persuasions. I say that that's because... It. I've got employers telling me they can't get enough people to work. 
that's our number one problem here. We've got all these great industries. We've got all this this thriving economy. They can't they can't find enough of a workforce. Well, then I talk to people who are potential workers, and their big issue is not only um, finding childcare, but if they find it, the cost of childcare, and is it worth going yeah. to a job that's barely going to pay them enough to cover a childcare? You know, exactly. that's a tough that's a tough scenario, and so. What the Child Care for Working Families Act would do um, is that it would ensure that no working family would pay more than 7% of their income on child care. And families that earn below 85% of state median income, I hate these terms because I do too, they're but so I confusing. But, but let me just say, in Pennsylvania, that number is 57000 and change. So people who earn below 85% of that amount would end up with free childcare. But more importantly, it, there's it's a long-term solution for the childcare crisis that we have in this country. Because the yeah. other crisis that we have is that nobody wants to work in childcare. It's crappy pay, it's a tough job, and you know, quite honestly, you know, the, many of them aren't making a living wage. Yeah. And and yet I will tell you as a parent who sent both of my kids to childcare, my number one concern was are they in a safe situation? Are these nice people? Are they going to treat my children well when mm-hmm. I'm not with them? And yet, it, and I know that that's what every parent thinks. And yet, as a country, we treat childcare workers as though they aren't, don't deserve more. And so we really need to work on that piece of it, too. It, it's, there's so many things to fix, but I really believe that if we can tackle this very large issue, it will be for the betterment of working families, but it will also be for the betterment of our economy and our our society at large. I really do. I mean, besides the basic human decency and the smart economics of it, it just seems to be a winner politically as well. Most Americans don't know that there's currently no federal requirements regarding any paid leave for new parents. Eighty percent believe there should be at least some. This Child Care for Working Families Act, yeah, you cap the cost at seven percent and you raise wages for the hardworking care providers and while putting more money back in parents' pockets. It just seems like right. politically something a smart Democrat would want to run on in their district. And there's one more piece of this act that I think is absolutely essential to mention. This is not just about your classic daycare situation. This also includes a universal preschool program so that states would receive funding that would help them to establish a system of high quality preschool programs for three and four year olds. And it would prioritize high need communities. I've got several in my district um, Mm -hmm. and it would support a living competitive wage. But But here's the thing. So we want our children to grow up to be smart, successful people, right? I mean, everybody does. And again, that's something that benefits us as a society. Well, the the work that has been done, the studies that have been done that show that children who are able to go to a quality preschool program are way ahead of the curve throughout their K to 12 years and beyond. So that, too, is a no brainer. And it would solve a lot of the daycare, the classic daycare problems, because you'd have these three and four year olds going to preschool at least part of the day. So I think that's also a big win win in this. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is progress. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. 
I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. I'm John saying This is SiriusXM Progress. I'd like to ask you about insulin pricing, if I could, because it's another area where you have been a leader and where I think Democrats could be clobbering the opposition in election politics. Um, our left-wing friends at the Rand Corporation point out that Americans pay about $98, $98.70 per standard unit of insulin. The next highest rate in the world is Japan, where it's only $14.40. Last winter, Representative, you went to the House floor, and you really forcefully challenged the legitimacy of the recent insulin price cuts from the major pharma companies, and you pressured the industry to reduce the cost to patients. I, I just want to thank you for calling out Eli Lilly and, and Novo Nordisk for their PR attempts to stave off congressional action. Do you get the feeling that now that this law has passed, they know the tide has turned and that they're not going to be able to gouge sick Americans anymore? <laughs> I think that's exactly what their concern is. You know, they... Those that voluntarily reduced their insulin prices was it was only after tremendous pressure and they saw what was coming and they saw what we had already done in the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, I'm sure you know that Big Pharma and their big trade association are seeking to overturn the Medicare negotiation provisions that we passed because they're scared to death that this is going to actually start being applied to other drugs. Exactly. And that's exactly my goal. I mean, listen, I want yes. to see insulin prices come down for everyone, not just Medicare patients. I've got people in my district who have childhood diabetes. I've got parents who are scared to death that their kid with diabetes is going to age out of the ACA at age 26. And what are they going right. to do for their medication? And they're not going to be covered by this uh, cap on, on um, insulin at $35 a month, at least not yet. But in addition to insulin, I mean, I talk to people, asthma inhalers, people on very yeah. expensive cancer drugs, people who need, uh, you know, and when it comes to things like heart disease, we have a lot of good generic drugs because, of course, heart disease is so prevalent in this country that it's been to the benefit of the pharmaceutical companies to really roll out those drugs. And many yeah. of them have become generic. But as we know, there is always the next best drug. And everybody wants the best possible drug for whatever their problem is. And so we can't stop at just reducing the price of insulin for seniors. I'm glad we did, but we got to keep mm -hmm. on going. And it is a passion of mine. I have pledged that I will haunt the halls of Congress until we get this done. I, I don't think that you will find anybody in the pharmaceutical industry who is a fan of mine. And that's okay <laughs> no. with me. That's okay. No, that's... that's okay with me. 
That's I've, I've seen your testimony. That's why we are fans of yours. Um, but I, I, I can I ask you to explain something to me, Congresswoman, because you're you're smart. Sure. You've been there a while. You you work with our Republican friends. You you know how it is. These these folks, they these Republicans in Congress, they've been telling us over and over again, we're not trying to cut Social Security and Medicare. We're not really going to do it. Joe Biden got them to virtually agree they wouldn't make cuts by doing a improv stand up routine in the middle of the State of the Union. And yet the Republican <laughs> Study Committee, of which three quarters of House Republicans are membered, are members just released their dream budget for 2024. And once again, in spite of everything they've said, this isn't just Rick Scott. This is three quarters of House Republicans looking for cuts right. to Social Security and Medicare. Are they so confident that they'll never lose an election again, that they can come out and put their names on documents like this? Are you as mystified as I am? I'm, I try to understand this. I, I, I'm, I'm very mystified by by that being part of um, their budget proposal, the Republican Study Committees, because it does tell you exactly who is uh, has signed on this. And that's not that's that is a very unpopular thing politically. Um, right. <laughs> but what I think this is all about is that they've got these talking points um, about, you know, the debt, the national debt, the budget deficits, you know, those kinds of things. And they've got it. They feel like they've got to show something. And they're yeah. certainly not willing to raise taxes for the one percent, which would obviously That's be right. the first first most logical place we should be looking if we uh, want to solve uh, budget budgeting issues in this country. And so they I, I don't know, but I don't quite understand the political strategy. I have to be honest with you, John, because <laughs> they're you know, you've got AARP and you've got uh, a lot of groups that represent retired Americans that are very forceful and they're they're good lobbyists, too. So I can't quite figure out the political strategy because at some point senior citizens overall are going to figure out that Republicans are coming for their Social Security and Medicare. At some point, they've got to. I mean, Fox News can't keep them in the dark about these policies they're voting for forever. It's yeah, it's quite amazing. The problem is the problem is, quite honestly, you know, and this addresses a much bigger issue in in Congress, and that is how we fund our elections. And I I know you didn't ask me a question about that, but I'd love to. It's my favorite um, topic. Yeah, me too. The the one percenters um, are who the Republican Party is playing to. Um, yes. And by one percenters, I don't just mean individuals. I'm talking about large corporate donors. Um, and by the way, um, this is a problem that is endemic in um, Congress. It's not just Republicans. Yes. Um, unfortunately, True. there is a lot of corporate money that passes through and pharma money is at the top of the list and i'm sure you know that the number of pharma lobbyists is one of the largest in the um oh of course in, in the country and so, so a lot of people getting know, rich off someone else's illness yeah and so what it comes down to john is this ultimately i mean i i say this as somebody in a, in a very tough district where the gop and dark money through somewhere like 15 million dollars at me last year and so you know when you come down to elections all of that money going into bashing people on television negative campaigning uh accusing me of ridiculous things you know that had no basis in truth 
they actually do manage to win some elections that way. Yeah. And so as long as this dark money is in politics, I'm not so sure that the fact that Joe Republicans signed off on this budget proposal is going to lose an election for him because he's going to have the full force of the GOP dark money coming in on television and radio and everywhere else against his opponent and in favor of him. And so that's the sad truth about why they can get away with this kind of thing. Do you support publicly funded elections, Congresswoman? I was a co-sponsor of H.R. 1 under the Democrats when we had the Democratic majority. I think that we absolutely need an alternative to campaign funding in this country. It is obscene. It's beyond obscene. Number one, it's beyond obscene how much elections cost. My yep. race went all in last year. Republicans, Democrats, big money, dark money and everything, so forth, $28 million dollars third most Mm. expensive one in the country in Mm. a single house district. So think of what that money could do if put to good causes. You also look at other countries, and I'm talking about our allies, developed countries, and how they run elections, and they're not perfect. But boy, they do do not spend a year and a half campaigning for, you know, an office that they're going to be on the ballot next November of 2024. My elect, my campaign basically had to start in January of this year for November of next year. That's right. Um, That's right. Because of the extraordinary, ridiculous amounts of money that you have to raise. And so am I in, in favor of campaign finance reform? I sure am. You say public funding. I think there are different ways of doing it. And actually, the old HR1 did have several different formulas. People didn't have to completely opt into public funding, but it was it was complicated, but there are ways of doing this. And, and by the way, the donor class would be greatly relieved to not get 15 phone calls a day from people <laughs> like me who are begging I, them for money. I'd like to believe that, although I'm sure a lot of them still enjoy doing their, you know, congressperson shopping every year. Uh, Congresswoman Susan Wilde, it is such a pleasure to have you. I think so much of the Democratic Party should take note of the brilliant and compassionate ways you reach out to your Republican constituents by actually doing things to change their lives. And of course, liberals are already in love with you because you were the one who co-sponsored the resolution to expel Marjorie Taylor Greene in 2021. (laughs) It is such a pleasure to have you with us. What is the best way, Congresswoman, for our listeners to keep up with you and all your doings? Um, So they can, two ways. One, on the campaign side, wildforcongress.com. We'll tell you a lot about my platform and that kind of thing. And we'll allow you to support me if you're so inclined. Um, (laughs) But if you want to follow what I'm doing on the official side, go to my website, wild.house.gov. We actually have a Friday afternoon um, newsletter that comes out religiously every Friday afternoon. It's called, uh, it's got the very creative name of Wild Week in Review. It is um, probably one of the most popular things that I've heard about from my constituents. We started it at the very beginning of my first term, and it's, we call it a snack size newsletter that tells people about what I've been doing in Washington this past week, you know, what the key issues are. You don't have to sit down and, you know, devote an hour to it. You can get the gist of it with a quick read. So sign up for Wild Week and review at wild.house.gov. I can only imagine the sort of things you've had pitched to you, Congresswoman. Congress gone wild. <laughs> it's, it's a pleasure oh, to have yeah. you with us. And thank you for your service. Please come back anytime. 
Thank you so much, John. Good to see you. And uh, I'd love to be back. Take care. Right on. We'll be right back. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hey, everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on. Because you know I love it when you do. Welcome back. So we like to have this illusion of the American Revolution being this time when Americans came together for the common cause of independence. But in many ways, the entire history of the United States is one of constant union and disunion. I mean, from the Civil War to the threats of secession going on right now, it has always been kind of a kind of an open question whether America would always be one nation or would be destined to be many. Even at our nation's beginning, there was not always a clear path to us becoming one tribe. So instead of disbanding into separate regional Confederate states, the founders did manage to unite for the sake of their own self-preservation. And in doing so, they succeeded in holding this country together. It was the first time Americans came together as one, despite differences, to achieve a common goal. And of course, to achieve this, they had to forge painful compromises. Eli Merritt is a political historian at Vanderbilt University who specializes in the founding era of the U.S. and the intersection of demagogues and democracy, something else that's always timely. He's written for the American Journal of Legal History, The New York Times. He's the editor of How to Save Democracy, Inspiration and Advice from 95 World Leaders. And his new book is Disunion Among Ourselves, The Perilous Politics of the American Revolution. And I guarantee it will take on every assumption you have had about the establishment of the United States as a single American nation and make you view it in an entirely different way. It also shows a very unpleasant and contemporary reality of our shotgun wedding of a country that realized the only choice was unite or die. It's a terrific political history drawn almost entirely from the actual congressional record and correspondence of the founders. It is a pleasure to welcome Professor Eli Merritt to Sirius XM. Thanks, John. It's great to be with you. Thank you. I'm so fascinated by the book because we've all been lulled into thinking the founders were all landowning white males fed up with being colonies of the British Empire. We, we've sort of been groomed to believe they were all brothers on the same side. 
And your book really shows that the unity only came about because the disunity was so ferocious. Yeah, that's right. I think we have long had a misunderstanding that the formation of the United States was inevitable. Uh, and of course, during a long period of idealization, that was helpful to us. If there was fear of disunion, it was always helpful to look back and say, look, the founders were very united, so let's be more like them. So that's that's been a very long, couple centuries old period when we have a historic perspective, I mean, a heroic perspective on the founding of the country. But in the past couple of decades, we've moved into what some historians are describing as the tragic focus or interpretation of the founding era. And as part of that tragic attention to the tragedy or a mature approach towards the, the founding history, we see foremost, we're really discovering and reckoning with the race issues and the, and the crime against humanity of slavery. So another thing we're recognizing through my book and my research is that the founding of this United States was far from inevitable. In fact, what seemed most likely was the formation of two, probably three regional confederations. And the number one reason we didn't get there is that the founders could not find a bloodless alternative to forming one country. You made allusion earlier to the concept of, um, of a shotgun wedding. That's the case. What they feared most of all is that toxic politics within the Continental Congress would cause one or more of the states to withdraw from the Union, and that would cause a chain reaction where they would all form themselves into separate confederations. And that sounds pretty dangerous and bad to us, but in fact, if they could have done that, they might have. The problem is they knew they would have fought civil wars over the finances of the Continental Congress, over commerce, and also over land. So that's where we get the shotgun wet. And they were really sort of forced into one union. And some good things came out of that. But also, we could talk at some point about it. It also formed, uh, was one of the many causations of the perpetuation of slavery. Absolutely. The Northern states had said, let's, 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 let's end slavery. It would have led to that three-step three chain reaction. Well, I definitely want to talk to you about it, but I, I want to start off with the First Continental Congress, where you begin the story, because it's really true. The, the founders were smart enough to know that they were not smart enough to survive if they didn't all stay together. And I found it fascinating to see that at the First Continental Congress, the Southerners were seemingly most terrified the New Englanders would try to force them to be Puritans. And they could agree on very little, including how they should represent based on population. It seems like from the very beginning, there was not even a chance at what we call consensus today. Well, and, that, and that's it. But there, there were these grave differences. And it was one reason, in fact, that you're, what you're alluding to, these great conflicts and great differences of opinion about how government should be organized, how representation should take place. And that involved uh, great disputes over slavery, less over the moral issues of slavery at that time, but over right. whether enslaved people would be considered persons, property or wealth. But ultimately, the what is well known is that the founders united the country during the American Revolution because they had the guns of the British Army and Navy pointed at them. That 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 we know. But in fact, I argue that that was not their greatest fear. They felt confident if we can unite successfully, we will win this war. Therefore, their greatest concern was that some issue it didn't have to be slavery. It could be anything. It could be commerce. It could be the Southern quest for the Trans-Appalachian lands. It could be New England's quest for access to the Newfoundland fisheries. It could mm -hmm. be South Carolina's refusal to sign a trade pact that prevented them from the continuation of the export of, of their indigo and rice, anything. So ultimately, they had to compromise to stay united, but sometimes they didn't compromise due to secession threats.
And also the sort of diplomacy they had to engage in when dealing with each other. I mean, we talk a lot about why Virginia was made the head of everything. First president, first president of Congress, author of Declaration of Independence. I found it fascinating that we might have New Englander John Adams to thank for this. You say that Adams was determined to, uh, as you put it, place Virginia at the head of everything. Was that because he knew how New Englanders were viewed by the South? I think that idea that John Adams expressed um, uh, before the First Continental Congress called the Frankfurt Advice, the idea was is that the American Revolution, the War of Independence started and was taking place only in New England, in Massachusetts. So the New Englanders wanted desperately to have a show of unity to Great Britain, and that meant bringing the southern colonies into a unity behind the defense of New England after the Tea Act, and in particular, we don't have to go into the details, but what we call the Coercive Acts or the Intolerable Acts. So Virginia was placed at the head of everything for one, that it, because it was the largest, most influential state or colony in the Union, and also because it was the flagship of the Southern colonies. If they could get Virginia at the head of everything, it would unite the Southern colonies to the Northern colonies, particularly to New England. I'll also quickly tell you a little story about how George Washington was elected commander-in-chief. Please. Had a lot of great qualities, obviously, on the battlefield. But what we don't understand is that Washington, and there's plenty of evidence to support this, was elected commander of the Continental Army because he was from Virginia. And middle colony people and southern colony people feared that if you had a New England general at the head of a New England army, there was a risk, in fact, that the New England army would invade and dominate the other colonies in the Union. So that's another potent reason why Washington, there was no sense that Washington at the head of a New England army was going to lead New Englanders against his own people. And that's why it is the greatest tragedy of this entire exercise um, and the greatest sin that this disunion you write of explains why they decided to perpetuate slavery, even though many of them knew the amoral criminality of it. You know, they really did. I think there were uh, plenty, plenty of hot-headed Southerners, maybe I don't mean to pick on South Carolina and Georgia too much, but who perhaps by that time had, had their mentality was twisted as it became later in, as we approached the Civil War. But for the most part, they knew that, that slavery was a form of despotism. And in light of the Enlightenment moment of 1776 in the American Revolution, it became more and more clear. So... Again, there the, the concept is if one or more of the southern northern states had said, "Look, we want to form a union with you, but it's time for it's time for us to move into enlightenment, also for for Black Americans." If they had said, "We're we must abolish the slave trade, or we must embark upon at least a gradual plan of emancipation," you would have had that three step chain reaction where southern colonies would have withdrawn from the union, formed their own confederation, reached out perhaps for to help from France because they need naval support. That's and right. ultimately, civil war would have happened and the gains of the revolution would have been lost. That's the way they thought about this calculus. So the founders did this to avoid a civil war, which was unavoidable 90 years later. It's amazing to look back and to see that what they were afraid of in a different different sort of permutations, in fact, came to pass. I do want to say, because we touched on slavery, a very mm -hmm. sensitive issue in our society and, and one I believe between now and the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence in 2026, I really believe we need to talk deeply about slavery in a way to appreciate complex history. We really need to understand this, this gravest tragedy and gravest trauma of our founding history. 
I do just want to add that there are many interpretive lenses to understand why the founders perpetuated slavery. So I just gave you what I called in the book the survivalist interpretation, which is the risk of disunion and civil wars if they meddled with slavery. But the others that we know better is there's a white supremacist interpretation about why the founders perpetuated slavery and the economic interpretation. And so I've recently been on my book tour where I've just been talking to people saying, they're all right. They are all right. We need to get out of this trap of zero-sum history and really appreciate that history is an additive, additive process. So all of those are right. And I would welcome others to bring in other interpretations about why the founders perpetuated slavery. We need to get the complex history because it's the reality of what happened. It's the truth. And also, I believe complex history helps us to mature as people and as a society versus dichotomous thinking that causes polarization. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back. I am curious, do you believe the country would have ever been born if the North had refused slavery at the birth of the Union? That's a great question. I think probably not. And this is the reason. Let's just say they had said, all right, we're going to get an Articles of Confederation signed before we declare independence, which, by the way, everyone thought was the most logical thing to do. They just couldn't get the Articles of Confederation done. But they said, we've reached the point we must declare independence. So imagine if there had been a fracturing or disunion in 1775 or 1776, where the southern colonies said, look, we were going to fight this war with you for liberty for, you know, and, and freedom for white Americans. But now that you're making very clear your intention, New England, is to abolish slavery, we're out. So mm-hmm. what would have happened? New Englanders are tough folks, and they would have said, well, we want to fight a war of independence on our own, all four or five of uh, us colonies. And there were, uh, Vermont was not yet a colony, but so there were, roughly, there were really four, but, but a, a fifth emerging. Well, it's highly possible that England would have come in, swooped into the South and said, look, we will protect your slaves. And look at this insanity going on up there. The Southern colonies likely would have joined in to help in a war of independence against the Northern states. That's why I think they would, at least in that phase of history, have lost the war of independence. New England would have lost the war of independence. And you point out it was Thomas Jefferson who said that the colonies have to unite for defense, but in his words, to preserve a military union, a constitutional union must wait. What did that mean that they'd have to wait to have the constitutional union? And why was it so essential that the colonies declare independence first? 
that's one of my favorite episodes from the book, in part because it involves uh, Benjamin Franklin. Mm. Benjamin Franklin arrived uh, basically right after uh, Lexington Concord, and he was rapidly he was he had spent a decade in London, and he was rapidly appointed to the Second Continental Congress. And it is very obvious that Franklin went up to his studio writing area and he said, "Oh, great, we're finally here." He had tried to get a constitution uh, signed in the past to unite the colonies against the French and Native Americans. In any event, he arrives at Congress with a full-blown constitution in 1775. And before presenting it and asking for a vote, he runs it by some folks like Thomas Jefferson. And Jefferson says, look, this is a pretty good constitution. I like it. But don't present this thing. This is going to cause us to fight like cats and dogs. And we're, we're having a hard enough time getting along as it is. We need to unite, have the war unite us. This constitution you're proposing is going to divide us and could possibly cause us to spin out into a centrifugal disunion. So Franklin, to his credit, said, all right, I, I get it. I've been out of the country for quite a while. So Franklin <laughs> did not propose the Constitution um, for a vote, but he did stand up towards the end of the Second Continental Congress. And he said, look, I want to propose a Constitution to you all. I don't want you to vote. I just want it to be fruit for thought. If ever things get more difficult and this war progresses with Britain, we might really want to think about signing a constitution like this. So we put it out there as a teaser, very smart move. Of course, it ended up taking, that was 1775. We have to ask ourselves, when did, in fact, the 13 states achieve the, the, the ratification of our first constitution, the Article of Confederation, 1781? So 17, so, so, so what is that? Six years later. And I can tell you a, a lot of, it wasn't easy to get that thing done. It was really only the desperate, desperate feelings of disunion and civil war that actually got the constitution ratified. Well, I mean, that's really what the whole story is about. The revolution up through now, what, what, as, as you said, the centrifugal force of disunion, which is a piece of language that completely sums up what a thriller this book is. I mean, from from the disunion in the First Continental Congress and then the Articles of Confederation, you know, we're really not taught about how the sectional divisions almost broke that apart right away as well. Yeah, that's right. It's been there from the beginning. Not long ago, I, I got a call from a, a director of a Massachusetts historical a society. We've been on the phone for no more than a minute. But he said, I got to tell you the truth. Your book, this is his, this is not paraphrase. This is quote. Your book mm -hmm. scares the hell out of me. And he went on to explain the reason for that is he said, I read your book. And now I feel convinced that disunion and civil war is in the DNA of Americans. And there is ominous content in the book. This is true. But ultimately, uh, I, I think it demonstrates that the founders overcame times that were far more challenging than our own in terms of the repercussions of deep political division leading to disunion and civil war. We're not quite at that just yet. So, but they did, I think it's important to recognize within the confines of the Continental Congress, they did practice what the Romans, what we study from the Roman times as civic virtue. So it wasn't just this threat of disunion and civil war. I think that was ultimately the most powerful force, but they were really only able to reach these compromises or make sacrifices because they believed in the art and science of civic virtue meaning they knew they had to treat one another with civility and respect. They knew they had to make concessions and on most things, at least, and cooperate and form compromises. So that's that that can inspire us, I think, today. I think we're living in an age of demagoguery, which 
to oversimplify, I think demagoguery is pretty much the polar opposite of civic virtue. Yes, sir. I mean, I have to say your your colleague makes a lot of sense and I I share their anxiety. But I think just as this book does show that these these divisions, this penchant for punching ourselves in the face, that that these tribal threats may be woven into our national DNA. This book also certainly shows that overcoming those tribal differences to work together is the only thing that works. And I think the book does it methodically and even scientifically. And it shows that maybe we're trapped in these cycles of disunion into union and back to disunion. I must say, I didn't realize that when George Washington finally triumphed over Cornwallis at Yorktown, that it was uh, not a time of universal celebration. Um, it, it was actually, uh, again, they, we were thrown back into complete disunion and the delegates were fighting over whether Vermont should even get to be a state. I mean, consistently at all these great high moments, we are taught of national victory. The chaos seems to be right around the corner at every turn. Yeah, that's very important. It's, and and for, for many people who were not in the throes of holding the, the American Union together, meaning the politicians in the Continental Congress, the victory at Yorktown was absolutely a moment of celebration. Uh, but, but it was a moment of celebration because the great conclusion drawn was, we have won this war. Now, the politicians, the, the delegates to the Continental Congress, they also had the same conclusion. We have won this war. But what did that mean? They no mm. longer had the war to unify them. So now back to the Jefferson uh, Franklin dilemma, where Jefferson said, the war is unifying us now, leave it alone, leave constitutions out of this. They really recognize now is the time that these two forces of, of, of constitutionalism and having a perpetual constitution to unite us and civic virtue are the only hope that we have as a, as a nation that won't fall into disunion and civil wars. So you're right in that conclusion. Well, I'd love to ask you about one of the most fascinating chapters for me, something that, again, we're not taught too much in uh, most history books, but that is the diplomacy that led to the Treaty of Paris. I've always felt that John Jay, uh, the the president of Congress, is uh, one of the more unsung founders. And it was actually um, a lot of interesting negotiation and even some sneakiness that led to the Treaty of Paris. Yeah, so John Jay had been the president of the Continental Congress during one of its most difficult years. And in short, that was the year when uh, the Continental Congress was called, OK, we need you to, to generate what your minimum peace terms for signing a peace treaty is, because Spain is going to try to mediate a peace. Well, you might think that's easy. They all agreed quickly on independence. We all want political and economic independence from Great Britain. But there were two other conditions that were hotly contested. One is we will also demand before we will sign a treaty of peace. This was the New England voice access fishing rights and uh, drawing rights in the Newfoundland fisheries up in the North Atlantic Sea. So, but just to clarify, this was the backbone of the economy of New England at that time. The Southern states went on to say, well, we also have something that we wanna make sure we get in the Treaty of Paris. And that is the Western lands that we claim all the way to the Mississippi River, including navigation on the Mississippi River, which was controlled by Spain then. This led to threats of disunion for sure during during that year, 1779. Fast forward to the Treaty of Paris. John Jay had spent a very painful two years in Spain being deceived and and rejected and humiliated. So when he arrived in Paris to negotiate the Treaty of Paris, he was on fire. He didn't trust the Spaniards nor the French. And he said, we have to do this our own way. And through his negotiation, plus John Adams, Benjamin Franklin greased the wheels, but he was not the dumb. He was not a forward force. 
they signed a peace treaty in 1783, which secured the complete economic and political independence of the 13 states and also got all the Trans-Appalachian lands extending to the Mississippi River, which the South was demanding, and they got as adequate uh, fishing and navigation rights, um, fishing and drawing rights in the Newfoundland fishery. So that in, that was a North-South uh, compromise that led to this. And if they had just gotten the New England fishery and not what the Southern states wanted, James Madison was very worried that it would cause deep trouble that would lead to a disunion because they would say the union was unfair. <laughs> What, what I love about the book is that it goes deeply into how messy the circumstances were and how ugly and brutal the politics could be, as opposed to the bewigged marble statues we are served in most history class growing up in, in, in grade school. And I'm curious, what is the danger of deifying these founders and turning them into these marble statues from Mount Olympus? What do we lose when we whitewash how messy the real truth is? Now, let me address first the question of the politics of the American Revolution being brutal and ugly. Please. I think it's important to recognize if if we look at Twitter today compared to the 1770s and 1780s, it was tough. It was hard. They didn't agree. They were polarized. They disagreed. They were passionate debaters. But there was not ad hominem attacks. There was not a lot of demagoguery. In fact, if there was a demagogue in the Continental Congress, they would work carefully to try and get that person removed because they understood in a way that we don't understand today that elected officials have to have some sort of core minimum of capacity to transcend self and transcend regional biases. So I wanted to say that because I do think that's something they had that we don't have, which was I, I agree. Politics. I agree. While nearly, while highly challenging, and the risk was disunion and civil war, they treated one another with civility for the most part. So, with regard I, to whitewashing history, yes, I was only saying that because I think, in terms of brutal politics, the threat of secession if we can't hold humans in bondage might qualify. But you're right; these people did know how to get along despite their differences in a blessedly pre-cable news era. Yes. With regard to whitewashing history, I think, as we mentioned, there's a period in history where we need to idolize the founding period, and that serves the interest of the country. And there becomes a period when taking a more complex and mature, and as I mentioned, a tragic approach to our, our history is more valuable. If we whitewash our history, we just simply we don't get to the truth of what happened. And now we have a beautiful sort of even aggressive desire to really understand and reckon with our past. So that's where it is my hope, and this is often not present, is my hope that we can deliberate about history in a manner that is passionate, but that to revert back to the concept of civic virtue, but that we can engage one another with civic virtue as conversants in, in history so that we can learn from one another and that we can grow from one another. The adoption of complex history, I think, and recognition of this concept of additive history instead of zero-sum history mm. It has been deeply meaningful in my own life. It's history helps me to grow as a person, helps me to become humble as a person. We're always learning. We're always discovering new things. So it's very important that we, we don't live history through a righteous mind. That would be one way we can mitigate our history wars, which you've, I'm sure you've read some about. Oh, yes. So a lot is a lot of loss when we whitewash history. Now is the time for truth seeking in a manner that is civil and respectful. 
beautifully said. And it's rare to find a book that is this scary and this inspiring at the same time. Professor Eli Merritt is the author. The book is Disunion Among Ourselves, The Perilous Politics of the American Revolution. Thank you so much for joining us. I loved your book. What a pleasure. Thank you, John. Great to be with you. 